Howdy. We doing okay this morning? I have a story for you real quick. When I was in elementary school, about fifth or sixth grade, my teachers would come up and they would say that today we're gonna have a special event. We're gonna have what's called a bicycle derby. Like I said, I was about fifth or sixth grade and we had all these grand visions in our head that they had brought in like trucks loads of dirt the night before. They were gonna totally redo the, the gym and that we were gonna come, there was gonna be half pipes and ramps and it's just gonna be awesome. And so we all bring our bicycles after school this one day, we're ready for the bicycle derby and we get into the gym and there are these two red lines in tape that go all the way across the gym floor about 18 inches apart. And they're like, welcome to Bicycle Derby. And we're like, yes. Now today, our exercise is we're going to go through these, between these two lines as slow as we can. And we're like, wah, wah. Okay, <laughs> bait and switch. This is probably some state-mandated balance test that they thought, well, how can we do this in a creative way? Let's get them to do this balance test on a bicycle. And so we go and we're like, okay, this is lame. And so the first few people go through and they're going through as slow as they can. They're standing on their bikes and trying to do it. And it's elementary school, so of course everything becomes a competition, right? So we're like, oh, I bet I can get 35 seconds, if I can get 40 seconds. And so people are going through, and there's this one kid in the back, his name's Jeremy, and he just had this incredulous, confused look on his face the entire time. He's going, oh, like, what's wrong with these people? This, this is terrible. Like, didn't anyone ever teach you how to ride a bike? man, I must be some sort of awesome. And of course, then I, it comes up to my turn and I, I give a performance which I'm sure was worthy of a standing ovation by all teachers, students, and, and the like. Um, but pretty soon it got to be Jeremy's turn. And Jeremy's turn, he was like, let me show you how it's done. So he wheels around the gym and he comes in and he blazes a trail right between the two lines. Perfectly, doesn't touch a line. He skids to a halt at the end. And his, if he had a collar back then, he'd pop it. <laughs> He's like, that's how it's done, guys, okay. And about that time, the, the gym teacher was kind enough to remind him, Jeremy, you do realize that the point of this is to go as slow as you can. So you're actually in last place right now. Would you, would you like to try again? And the realization just washed over his face. He's like, oh, oh. And so he did it again. And of course, he looked as dumb as the rest of us as he goes through trying to make that line. Now, why would I tell you that story? It's because Jeremy, at some point, he missed the point of the whole game. He missed the rules of the game. And just like any game that we play, if we don't understand the rules, then our strategy on how to win that game is going to be off and we're going to lose every time. Does that make sense? Have you ever taught like a child to play tic-tac-toe? Where it's like, I put the X here and then they immediately try to block you. And it's like, I haven't even made, okay, whatever. And they don't understand at some point that they're never going to win because all they're trying to do is block you. They're not actually trying to get three in a row. Does that make sense? And so if you don't understand the rules on how to interact with the person across the table, you stink at that game. You're never gonna win. And it's gonna be very frustrating. Now, today what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at one of the most easily recognized parables in the entire Bible. And by Jesus telling us this parable, he's going to totally help us avoid missing the point and totally recast how we interact with God and how God interacts with us, how we relate to the person on the other side of the table. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have your copy of your scriptures with you this morning, um, I've printed out the parable in its entirety on the front side of your notes. And if, if still that is not your cup of tea, there's probably an eight foot version of the scriptures behind me on the screens. So we all have our options this morning. 
Now, I do have to give a short disclaimer on this, is that some of your outlines, it turns out that Macs and PCs don't really work well together. I never would have thought this. Um, so some of your outlines have like E, F, G, H, Roman numeral 12. It's, it's, it's a little messy, but just understand that it's a Roman numeral 1, A, B, C, Roman numeral 2, A, B, C. Some of you, you're like, yeah, that's what mine says. Some of you, it doesn't. Like I said, Mac and PC, who would have thought, right? So, um, so first what we're going to do is we're going to read this parable in its entirety, and then what we're going to do is we're going to extract some principles from our three main characters, and we're going to see how we can apply those principles inside our daily lives. So are you ready? All right. Let's get with me. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. We're going to read together. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill the stomach, his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out. I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has had him back safe and sound. Now the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, which was dead, is alive again. He was lost and now is found. How are y'all doing so far? You with me? All right. Now, after reading this parable, I want to look at our three main characters, characters and see what principles we can pull out from these. The first one we're going to look at is from The Rebel. Now, the title of this sermon is The Rebel, The Righteous, and The Radical. Um, they all start with R, so I didn't know if you caught that. It's pretty cool, huh? Um, I'm going to make a disclaimer about that here in a little bit. We're going to start with our rebel. And one of the first things we see from our son the rebel son, is A, is that attitude precedes action. I'm sure many of you have heard the proverb, like, be careful of your thoughts, for your thoughts become your words. Be careful of your words, your words become your actions. Be careful of your actions, I'll spare you the grammar. Actions become your habits, your habits become your character, and your character becomes your destiny. Have you ever heard that quote before? It's like on every refrigerator in, you know, 
So um, there was an education journal who did a little, not a parody of it, it was a, a variation of that, and it said, be careful of your feelings. And so what is the whole point of that quote? The whole point is that your destiny, your character, all these huge things start off at just a thought, at just a feeling. A.W. Tozer used to say that the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. So let's look at the text for a second. Now, we don't really get to see all the thoughts of all the characters, but we do get to see their actions. Sometimes we see their actions, and sometimes we actually see what's going on in their minds. Now, the first thing I want to look at is the set of actions from the younger son. Look with me in verse 12, please. It says, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, to appreciate the full blunt of this force, this is not just a young whippersnapper saying something off the cuff. This is a calculated insult. Okay, this is a calculated insult. Um, so in essence, he's doing irreparable damage to the relationship with his father because see, he's saying two of the most hurtful and hateful things that you can possibly say to another person. One, in asking for his inheritance before that person has died, he's saying, one, you are worth more to me dead than you are alive. Two, he's saying, I don't want you, but I would like your stuff. This was not just a little barb that he threw at his father. This was a calculated spear thrown through the heart of his father. He was separating himself in its entirety. Now think of the kind of emotions, the feelings, the thoughts that have to be going on under the surface to precipitate in that sort of attack. Think of the hatred, the bitterness. Can you imagine that? That would precipitate in that sort of attack. And I also want you to notice that he asked for the land. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Genesis know that book of the Genesis 12, 15, 17 is about the Abrahamic covenant. It's where uh, God comes to Abraham and promises, promises him land and seed and blessing. Okay, For a Jew to say, Dad, just liquidate your assets and give me the money was unthinkable. Is land important to the Jewish people? Uh, Yeah. Look at the Middle East right now. Land is very important. For a person to say, take me out of the land, was essentially saying, take me out of the covenant. I'm opting out of God's covenant. I'm opting out of this family, and I'm opting out of you. I want out. The second thing we see from this son is that riches without discipline or wisdom can be destructive. Now, this should be pretty self-explanatory, but I just want to clarify, I'm not money bashing. I'm not going to money shame you. I'm not saying money is evil. I'm saying that money is a tool, and either you will use money as a tool or money will use you as a tool. It, it can't be both ways. It's one or the other. And I'm sure we've all known people like that where the worst thing you could possibly do is give them money because they don't have the wisdom or the discipline to be able to control that. It's the reason you don't give the keys to your car to your 10-year-old. Why? It's not because the car is evil. This is not Christine. It is because it requires a specific skill set to drive that car. And if you don't have that skill set, you're just going to kill yourself, right? That's the reason why we don't give 10-year-olds our cars. Now, I used to have a mentor who would pray something very similar to this, not 10-year-olds in cars, but about money. He would start off his prayer. He would say, God, please don't give me money. It's a good prayer, right? God, please don't give me money without giving me an equal amount of wisdom and discernment to be able to steward it well, okay? That was a man who was fairly well off, but he had seen the destruction that money can do within his family and in his circle. He knew, God, please don't give me a dollar that you don't give me the wisdom to use well and to use for your glory. 
Um, so how destructive was this pit that this son dug for himself with this money? I want to take a little time and just see how deep this pit goes. Look with me in verse 13, please. It says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. First thing he did is he got away from all accountability. He went far away where no one would know him or see him. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? My son tries to do the same thing. I've got a two-year-old who'll try to go into a little tent to do what he's not supposed to do. In this case, it's chewing the heads off of Nerf bullets. So he'll just go behind this tent and he'll... (laughs) And so you'll hear this little crunching sound from inside the tent. And you're like, what are you doing? You tear down his high places and you're like, oh! He tries to get out of sight so he could do the bad things. They're smart, even at two, I promise. Now... This is a, um, let's see, verse 15, we continue. It says that so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him in the fields to feed pigs. Now, this is a double punch to a Jewish listener. First, he was in a distant country. And what does that mean? It means that he was among the unclean. He was among Gentiles. And then, second, it says he hires himself out to a citizen of that country. Now, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. A Jew could hire themselves out to a Gentile to do some work, and you, could, you didn't have to defile yourself. But that's not the Greek word that's used here. The Greek word that's used here is called kolon, which means to unite with, to cleave to, to bond yourself with. A lot of you remember the wording in the book of Genesis says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, will cleave to one wife, and those two shall be one flesh. This is the same concept. This is what's happened in a cultural sense. He hasn't just hired himself out. He's become bonded to the people in this country. To a Jewish listener, this is not just a Jew who has defiled himself. This is a person who has expunged their entire Jewish identity. Which leads us perfectly into the next verse as it shows what happens when life brings you to make such compromises. Verse 16 says, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Because here's the thing, uh, letter C in your outline says, Circumstances can alter your desires. He's a man in an unclean nation, serving an unclean man, and he wants pig slop. His desires have been seriously altered. Now, a quick question is, do you think that he wanted pig slop when he was a high roller at the Bellagio? No. He was eating at their awesome buffet every day, sometimes twice. And just for kicks, if he wanted a change in scenery, he'd go across the street to Ruth Chris just for something different. He did not want pig slop while he was in that state. But now where is he? He is desiring the slop of the unclean animal of the unclean man, of the unclean country. He could get no lower. And notice that he wasn't like a shepherd of pigs. He wasn't like taking care. He was serving the pigs. He was underneath the pigs. To a Jewish listener, he could get no lower. Now, thankfully, we have a turning point in this story, and it all happens in the next verse in these six little words. And when he came to his senses... And for some of us, we have been praying those six words over friends and family and children for years. Those who are still wallowing and rolling with the pigs, but haven't yet come to their senses. And if that's you this morning, I just want to tell you, keep praying. Keep being faithful. God is good. I want you to look at what happened to the prodigal son. Notice that he wasn't in, even in the vicinity of the father and the family. It wasn't by arguing or I told you so's or anything. It was while he was totally separated, God came to him and God woke him up. And it says he came to his senses. So be encouraged by the prodigal son. Keep praying, stay faithful, for God is good. Now, 
Another thing I want to share with us is that D, perspective changes everything. Once that son's perspective changed, everything changed. Look at what he says in verse 17. It says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving? I'll set out, I'll go back to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, I want to stop right there and just make one thing absolutely clear. The son still didn't get it. He was not perfect. What does the text say? It says, make me as one of your hired servants. Now, hired servants is interesting in the Greek because it comes from the word remuneration, which means like payback. So in other words, the son is already trying to set the boundaries of the relationship with the father. He's going to say, I'm going to come back, but I'm going to do some work for you, and then you pay me, right? I'm not going to come and offer myself as a slave. I'm going to do some work. You pay me. And even underneath that, do you hear what he's saying? I'll pay you back, Dad. I know I did all this stuff, but I'm going to pay you back as if your minimum wage 7-Eleven job is going to be able to pay for the amount of injury and insult you caused your family. This son was still an idiot. But it's an idiot that got up and walked home. And that should give us great encouragement because it means that in order to get up and come home, you don't have to have all your stuff together. You might be struggling with an addiction here, with a problem here, with marital struggles. It says you don't have to be perfect in order to come to Christ. It says all I need is the idiot to stand up and walk home. I'll take care of the rest. And that gives us great encouragement this morning that I don't have to be perfect in order to come to God. I just have to get up and walk home. Now, Another character we see in this story kind of has a late entrance. We don't see him until verse 25. It's the older brother. It's the righteous brother. In fact, it's the original founding member of the Righteous Brothers. <laughs> My wife told me that joke wouldn't play. That's it. There you go. So, um, look with me in verse 25. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, first off, location, location, location. Where is the older brother when we first meet him? He's in the fields, right? Convenient, right? He's presumably working, but question, was he close to the father? Absolutely not. What does this tell us? It tells us the principle from the righteous is that location does not equal inclination. Now, the elder son was physically in the right place, but his heart was far from the father's. You're going to see this several times throughout Scripture. I'll just give you one. Isaiah 29, 13 says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they've been taught. So it is possible to be externally close, but internally distant. Example, look at Judas Iscariot one of the 12 disciples who saw Jesus bring people back from the dead, who witnessed the feeding of the 5,000, who was sent out two by two to perform miracles, who was the stinking treasurer of the bunch. But at the end, he still didn't get it. His heart did not belong to Jesus. Now, why is that important? It's important because it reminds me of one of the scariest passages in all of Scripture is that he could be so close for so long and still didn't get it because Jesus says, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? Did we not cast out demons? And Jesus says, depart. We haven't met. 
Like, you don't know me. I don't know you. You're talking about all these actions, but what I've been after this whole time is your heart. Because if I have your heart, the actions take care of themselves. Love the Lord with your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. On this hang the entire law and the prophets. If you take care of that, everything else falls in place. But do you want to talk to me about the list of what you did? I don't have your heart. We haven't met. Because with your heart, actions take care of themselves. But without the heart, acts of righteousness can sometimes become an obstacle to relationship which is your next point. And I want to clarify that because it's not true righteousness that can sometimes be an obstacle to relationship. It's self-righteousness. That's the first thing I wanted to to clarify is that this older brother is not righteous. This older brother is self-righteous. And the second thing I want to clarify is that I'm not knocking the value of discipline and righteousness. Listen to me carefully when I say that those are necessary components to the Christian life. Did we hear that? Discipline and righteousness are necessary components for growth in the Christian life. But true righteousness undergirds a relationship. Self-righteousness places it on top of the relationship and tries to place God as our debtor. Does that make sense? Let's look at how the older brother frames it in verse 28. Verse 28 says, The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father and said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Isn't that interesting that he uses the word slaving? He wasn't a slave. His brother was a slave. I just think that's cool. That's free. Sorry. I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours squanders your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. Here The elder son's true colors finally come out and his heart is opposite of that of the father's. What makes the father celebrate makes the son angry. Why? Because here is the hardest and most uncomfortable truth of this parable is that both of these sons have completely missed the point. Neither of them loved the father the way they should. They both used the father to get what they really wanted. They just took two different paths. One of them by being very good and the other by being very bad. Now, what did they really love? What was life all about to them? It was the same thing, wasn't it? It was goats and calves, parties, wild living. So here's perhaps another one of the most important points for this morning is that our intent determines our content. In other words, perhaps even more important than what you do is why you do what you do. You see, whenever your motivation for righteousness is for blessings rather than the relationship, you've got an older brother problem on your hands. Because in the end, you're giving not to give glory to God. You're not giving to be a part of that relationship. You're giving in order to get. You're giving so that you can receive. Does that make sense? Now, I want to make certain clear is that you do get inside the relationship. That is, that is the Father's whole point. You do get that stuff, but you're not focused on the blessing. You're focused on the relationship, and the blessings come. Does that make sense? Now, True righteousness, I said, undergirds a relationship and self-righteousness places God as our debtor. It's like God becomes a slot machine. It's like I put in X, I should receive out Y. I put in this, you get out this. And if I put in this and you don't give me this, we have a problem now, right? Do you see how the self-righteousness works? Listen to how the older brother frames it again. Verse 29, it says, he answered and father said, look, all these years I've been slaving, yet you never gave me a young goat. But when the son of yours squanders your property, you kill the fattened calf, it's like, help me understand this. Now, 
We give the older brother a, a hard time, and rightly so in a lot of cases, but do you really understand, I mean, do you understand what the older brother's saying? I mean, I sure do. And it's like, what is he most focused on? He's focused on justice. He's focused on, like, I made this set of choices, why isn't this set of consequences coming out? He made these choices, why aren't these consequences coming out? I understand that. Justice is good. Good societies are founded on justice, right? But that's not the prerogative of the Father right now. The Father says this, grace, this is point C, grace trumps justice here. Now, both brothers have made their set of choices, and the older brother is just wanting to see justice play out. Have you ever seen those commercials where it's like, I used to owe $150,000 in back taxes, but after calling this 1-800 number, I now pay $100 a month. Does that make anyone feel good in this room? Like, great. I pay my taxes, why? And it's like, I've paid my taxes. You have not paid your taxes, and all of a sudden there's this 800 number that's gonna bail you out of the consequences, right? Does that make people feel good? It's like, no, where's the justice in that, okay? Or I'll, I'll just say it like this, like biblical characters, I don't like Samson. Like me and Samson are not gonna get along in heaven very well, at least from what I can see right now. I'll be like, Isaiah, how are you? Good to see you. Samson's walking, okay, okay. Let's just walk. What's up, Samson? Peace. Um, why? Because he constantly had his fist up in God's face his entire life, and God continued to bless him. And I was like, why are you blessing that? He was supposed to be a, a, Nazar, a Nazarite, where he was not just supposed to be clean, he was supposed to be uber clean, like never drink wine, never cut your hair, and he was unclean to the nth degree. He's like, mom, I know I'm not supposed to marry a Jew, but I want you to go out and give me a Philistine wife, make it hot and spicy, give me one of those girls. And he's like, okay, and they bring him a girl. Um, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna defile myself and take you know, honey out of, the, out, of a, out of a carcass, I'm gonna feed it to my family. They're like, oh, is this clean? Oh yeah, it's clean, go ahead. Every choice he made, it seemed that he just had his fist up in God's face, and God's like, no, I'm gonna use him. I'm gonna bless him. I'm gonna have compassion on whom I'm gonna have compassion, and I'm gonna be just to whom I'm gonna be just. And it just, I'm the older brother, okay? Just in case you don't know that, I'm the older brother. <laughs> like, what in the world? What is going on? Now, here's the thing that I noticed, is that people usually like grace for themselves, but justice for other people. Am I right? But here's the thing is that knife cuts both ways because if God were to be completely just with you or with me or with anyone else here, no one in this room could bear that weight. I love the way the Net Bible captures this in Psalms 133, 130, verse three. It says, if you, O Lord, were to keep track of sins, O Lord, who could stand before you? The answer is no one. We all stand in need of God's grace. And ridiculously, almost comically, it's us, the recipients of grace, who try to act like the traffic cops. It's like, grace, come over here, right here. Justice, 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 grace. It's like we try to decide where grace is appropriate and where grace is not. But here's the thing. Once grace is merited somewhere, it ceases to be grace. What is grace? It's unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it. You will never deserve it but I'm giving it to you anyway. And thank God for the Father's grace. And that leads us to our final character in the story. This is the Father. Point A is that the Father feels for his children. Will you look with me in verse 20? It says, but while he was still a long way off, the Father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And I love that phrase, filled with compassion, because it's only used 12 times in the New Testament, and every other time except this time, it refers to Jesus and the way he felt when he saw either a crowd or an individual. 
And I love what that says because it says Jesus, whose heart perfectly mirrors that of the Father, is moved with compassion for people and for individuals. It's not just a politician who's in it for the state, who's in it for the groups. It's someone who knows the groups, feels for them, and can also come down to a personal level and say, I see you, I see your pain, and I am moved by you. Does that make sense? That gives me great comfort. And it's almost like this, this word for compassion. He was filled with compassion. It's a very romantic word in the Greek. It's splagnon, okay? Yes, it sounds like a body, body fluid. And that's basically what it is because it means your insides, your guts, your heart, your intestines. It means that his insides are turned when he sees his son. The father sees his son afar off and he has to move. His guts are turned within him. And that brings us to our next point, that the father does not just feel for his children, he responds to his children. If you were to go through this parable line by line, bit by bit, you'll see that it's the father who drives this story. It's the father's actions. I want to take a look at this. Verse 11, this is his first set of actions. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So I want to geek out on the original languages again just for a second. It's because the son asks for the estate, okay, and the father gives up the property, right? The only problem is that's not the exact same words used in the Greek. Those of you who are reading from like a King James or a New King James, it says that the son asked for the property and then the father divided up his living. His living, because in the Greek, it's the word bios, where we get the word biology. It means life. The son asked for money and the father divided up his very life. What does that tell us? The father goes above and beyond the requests of his children. He doesn't just feel for his children. He responds to them. Now, another way that the father responds is in what happens. Look at what after he felt compassion for his son. Let's look at what he did in verse 20. It says, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him, was filled with compassion, and then what did he do? He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's how the father responds to his children coming home, with unbridled love. Not judgment, not punishment, not a stern rebuke, not I told you so. He throws his arms around him and kisses his son. And think some of us in here need to hear that this morning. That the only thing in the Father's mind when he thinks of you is this perfect, powerful, overwhelming, unstoppable love. It's not the God with the baseball bat waiting for people to get out of line. The only thing he thinks about when he thinks of his prodigal son is he loves you. He just wants you to get up and walk home. He'll take care of the rest. And I love that the Father responds to the rebel. Don't get me wrong. But I also love that the father responds to the self-righteous son. Look with me in verse 28. It says that the older brother became angry, refused to go in, and so his father went out and pleaded with him. The father didn't try to carry on this party without his whole family involved. He went to his older son and pleaded with him. The Greek word used there is para kaleo. Para is where we get like paramedic or paralegal. And then kaleo is like to, to urge, to call, to exhort. And so you have this image of the father coming next to the son alongside him and trying to win him over. Do you see what it's talking about there? I'm trying to coax him back into the family. You can hear the father saying, son, why are you, why are you hung up? Let's, let's look at what's good. Our family is whole again. Is that something worth celebrating? Your brother was dead but is alive. 
Are you happy about that? Can you celebrate? Can you hear the Father pleading with him, get on the same page as me? Don't focus on what's bad. I am celebrating what is good, and I invite you to come and celebrate that with me. And it's not just that the father responds to both of his children. The father responds in point C is that father shows ridiculous grace. We've already seen how the son asked for money, but the father gave him life. We're going to see even more things. It says, the son said to him in verse 21, follow with me, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, quick, bring out the best robe, put out a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, let's have a party. Now notice that the father doesn't even let the son finish his lines. He's like, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And again, yeah, 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 yeah. Bring out the robe, bring out the sandals, bring out the pants. Let's have a party. And he's like, you totally ran over my line, Dad. Like, I'm, I'm trying to say something here. And he's like, it's okay. You came home. I got the rest. This is the father's show, okay? Now, what's the significance of robes and rings and sandals? I love the robe. The robe, it says, the father says, bring out the best robe. Who, who do you think the best robe was in that house? It was the father's. A symbol of the father's status, the father's majesty, the father's authority, the father's beauty, the father's fortune. All that, he says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. His son comes up naked and stinking of a pigsty, dirty, ashamed, and the father says, get my best robe and cover that stuff up. Doesn't that give us encouragement? The Father gives us his own righteousness, his own blessing, his own splendor, his own majesty, and covers up our shame, covers up our sin. There's so much to say here, but we gotta move on. The ring is the next one, and the ring is the one that honestly makes me the most uncomfortable because, hi, I'm the older son, nice to meet you. Um, he says, give him a ring. Now, a ring was essentially the family credit card. It says that all family business that is stamped with this ring, the full financial force of the family is behind it. <sighs> the son who just squandered a third of the fortune is now given a credit card. <sighs> what do you think? Like, what's going on? Like I said, hi, I'm the older son. And then the, the third thing was sandals. Sandals. A sandals just said he wasn't a slave. Slaves went around barefoot. The masters wore the sandals. It was saying that his status is restored to him. He's not, I love this, because it says he's not gonna have to scratch and claw his way back into the father's graces. The father said, welcome home, son. Robe, ring, sandals. You don't work your way back to me. That would be impossible. There's no way you could work yourself back to me. Welcome home, son. And then the calf. Now, many of us are probably thinking, like, what's this fascination with goats and calves? And it's just weird. I know you're an Aggie, but really, can you find something else? Um, in the time before the quarter pounder, meat was a delicacy. Okay? Um, and so to get a young goat was for a very special occasion. A fattened calf was even more so. The point is, is that it's just talking about a party on a ridiculous scale. Okay? And notice that it wasn't necessarily a party to honor the son. Everyone knew what the son had done. They weren't saying, son, second son, you're awesome. Welcome home. We're so glad you're back. They weren't saying that. The father was saying, I have joy. I invite you into my joy. It brings me joy that my prodigal son has come home. I invite you into that joy. Does that make sense? We are invited to the father's party. It's not our party. It's the father's party. 
Now, last we see that the father is not just gracious to the rebel, he's also gracious to the older son. Notice when the older son comes at him and he says, look, I have slave for you, right? You remember when he says this, the word, he doesn't call him father. He says, look, and that has the force of essentially, look, old man, let me tell you how it's gonna be. I have been slaving for you and you have done this. He accuses the father of injustice. And how does the father respond? He doesn't just say son, because that would remind him of his status, that he's a son. He says something even more intimate. In the Greek, it's called technon, which is not just son, it's my child. My child. When the older son is going off on his dad saying, look, old man, you're not gonna squander the rest of our fortune on this jerk of a son of yours. And notice it's your son who squandered your property, that distancing language. He responds with, my child, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. Even when the older son is in the father's face, the father responds with grace. Hey, that rhymed, I didn't even mean to. Um, Because you see in this story, every move of the father is designed with one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to bring both of his sons home, to bring them both into the party. We see in point D that the father values repentance over retribution, okay? Now, can you imagine if justice were in the front seat of the story? Can you imagine if the father was moved not by compassion, but was moved by justice, and you see the father rushing out with a baseball bat? That's essentially what should have happened in Jewish law. This son was not welcome anywhere near. He should have been killed on the spot for dishonoring his father that way. The father, the son comes home and the father is moved with compassion. Or what about this? Can you imagine if the older brother was in charge when the younger son came home? Can you imagine how Game of Thrones it would have gotten really quick? (laughs) Right? It's not justice at the wheel. Grace is at the wheel here. So how can we apply these principles into our daily lives? I don't know if many of us have noticed, but this parable ends on a cliffhanger because we don't know what happens. We don't know if the older brother finally lets go of his issues and comes in because this parable is a response, okay? At Luke 15, chapter, or Luke chapter 15, verse one, says the Pharisees and the scribes were accusing him of this man receives sinners and tax collectors. Do you hear what's going on? The righteous were saying, this guy is hanging out with the wrong crowd. You see, because in the Pharisees' minds, justice was in the front seat. They were like, they wanted Jesus to tell off the tax collectors, to call them traitors, to tell off the sinners, to tell them how bad they've been and how much they have broken God's law and end it with a mic drop. And then the Pharisees would be like, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And Jesus says, you idiots. You have no idea what makes the Father happy. Doling out justice to the wicked does not make the father happy. What makes the father happy is when sinners come home. In fact, it's a lot easier for me to get them into the kingdom than it is you because you're the ones who are standing on the outside with all of your hangups. They are the ones who are easier to get into the kingdom than you are. I think the perfect storybook ending for this parable is for both sons to join the party. To do that, we need to get on the same page as the father. And let me just tell you this morning, if you find yourself on the outside of the party this morning, I promise you it's not because you're not invited and it's not because you're locked out. In my case, 100% of the time, it's because I'm the one with my arms crossed standing on the outside ready to give God a piece of my mind because of some hangup or another. And just like in the parable, God comes to me and says, my child, let's work through this because I have a party in here and I really want you in there. But to do that, you have to get on the same page as me.
The father is pleading, come join the party. Second thing we can do is we can know the rules, that this is all about relationship. Do you remember the book of Joshua? After Joshua had gone in and conquered Canaan and he was uh, giving out these pieces of land to each of the tribes of Israel? Do you remember what piece of land the Levites got? They didn't get land. They got sanctuary cities throughout the, throughout the nation because God says, I am their portion. I am their inheritance. It's like land and all that stuff. I own the cattle on a thousand hills, baby. This land is nothing. He goes, I am their inheritance. And what he's saying in that is that and that trumps everyone's because they get to serve the most high God. They get to get closer to me than any other tribe. I am their portion. And you notice that the father says the same thing in this parable. When the son says, Father, I've been slaving and you shouldn't give me a goat, wah, wah, wah. The father responds, my child. And then he gives the most profound answer. He goes, you are always with me. Do you hear what he's saying? He's like, you're talking about goats. You're talking about calves. You're talking about parties and prostitutes. You have an audience and a relationship with the king. You want a goat? That's what this is about, a goat? You have the king. To be in relationship with me trumps every blessing that you could possibly throw out at me. You want blessings, really? When you're in relationship with me, blessings, all that I have is yours. It trickles down, but it starts at the relationship. You are always with me. Last thing that we can do is I think we can find others to walk with us. Recruit your team. We're in this series called Team Building, um, and today I want to talk about recruiting. And to do this, we need to know our strategy, and I've heard it said like this, that everyone needs a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy relationship in their life. That means everyone needs a mentor. Everyone needs a mentor. You don't graduate from that. Of I am old and mature in my faith and I have graduated from the need of a mentor. That's not true. We all need mentors. Okay? We all need a Barnabas, who's someone, a colleague. We all need a mentor, a colleague, and a learner, essentially. Find someone who's in the same walk of life from you. Find someone who's struggling with the same things and lockstep with them and walk through this life together. Find someone that looks like you, maybe not physically, 20, 10, 20, 30 years behind and say, I was there. I remember what it was like to do that. I might be able to speak into that. Because let me tell you something, church, we need us. And without us, we become the older son, the younger son, so stinking fast. It happens like that. So within those relationships, we are able to come together and sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron to keep us pursuing that relationship with the Father. Because without those relationships, it's gone. It's gone. We, be, we go left to right so quick. So let me encourage us this morning, find your team and find your team inside here. Find someone that you can pour into, find someone that you can lock step with, and find someone that you can teach. Because the only way we'll be able to pursue this relationship to get the point of the game is that it's relationship with the Father to get the point we need each other to keep us on. Will you pray with me? God, we give you this time and we thank you that you have given us this beautiful, beautiful picture in the prodigal son of that you were saying that it's not just a God up there with a baseball bat ready to dole out justice to those who step out of line. You are a God who delights in prodigals returning home. 
You are a God who delights in older brothers that are being brats on the outside of the party coming into the party. You are a God who delights in your family being whole. And so, Father, we pray this morning that in our hearts and in our lives, there are areas that we are prodigals and there are areas that we are the older son. And I pray, God, that you will separate those, that you will weed those out. You will show us and that in your beautiful, gracious, soft, and tender way that you will convict us and bring us to a place where we are one heart with you, Father. Because that is what we desire this morning. Show us where we're prodigals. Show us where we're the older son. And show us where we can show the Father's ridiculous grace in our lives. We pray that we are conformed to your word and to your will. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.